good to be with you again. <clears throat> One of the writers says this, For the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come and not the very form of the things, can never by the same sacrifices offered year by year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, <clears throat> would they not have ceased to been offered, since once having their hearts cleansed for, excuse me, let me reread that. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have consciousness of sin. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and of goats to take away sins. When you think about Hebrews, which, by the way, is my favorite epistle, when you think about Hebrews, the one thing that's clear as you travel through the book particularly when you come to chapter 8. It has a particular view of the Old Testament, and that is the law with its prescriptions of sacrifice, the law with its outlay of the temple, is only a shadow. That's all it is. It's preparatory. It's only a shadow. And so the writer of the Hebrews, who's probably writing somewhere around 68 A.D., is saying, this is only a picture of the good things to come, and they're all fulfilled in Christ. And so when you think about the passage of time and you let your mind wander through the Old Testament, you recognize that God dwelt among men in the Garden of Eden. He walked in the cool of the day with Adam. And then he set up a tabernacle in which God's Shekinah glory came and dwelt among the children of Israel. And when they entered the promised land under Solomon, he set up a temple by Solomon. And First Kings 8 talks about the Shekinah glory coming into the temple. And then the temple was destroyed in 586 B.C. And then the children of Israel came back into the land and built another temple, which eventually was modernized and became the Herodian temple. It's this huge edifice. It's, takes up, it took up 35 acres of land. The outer walls were 300 yards long by 500 yards long. It was a huge complex. And the writers of the Hebrew says, it's just a shadow. And so when you go through the epistle of the Hebrews, you realize that Jesus is the fulfillment. He's the fulfillment of the law so that the old covenant becomes the new covenant. He's the fulfillment of the sacrificial system all the sacrifices point to him, and he fulfills them in his work on the cross. And he is the fulfillment of the temple. The word became flesh, 
and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as of the glory of the only begotten, full of grace and truth. And then when Jesus ascends into heaven, the temple is now called the body of Christ. Paul tells us that in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. For you are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God dwells in you. If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. And the temple you are, and you are holy. So that we look in 1 Peter chapter 2, and we see in 1 Peter chapter 2, the idea of us being built together, growing up into a spiritual house, combined with Ephesians chapter 2, in which the Spirit dwells, that we might offer sacrifices to God acceptable through Jesus Christ. That is the era we look in. So from garden to tabernacle to temple to church. And the only explicit thing left in the New Testament, and I emphasize the word explicit, is not a rebuilt temple, but the New Jerusalem that has no temple. Because the Lord God and the Lamb are the temple and there's no need of the sun or the moon because the Lord God is the glory of that place and the lights shine. Just a little stress on history as we get started. Would you bow with me in prayer? Lord God, now we come to your word and we want your help. We're a people who look to you. And we know that in your word you speak to us by your spirit. And we want what the spirit wants, and that is for Christ to be more glorious in our eyes and that he would become all in all to us so that everything else pales in comparison so that we grow in understanding your incomprehensible love for us. It's breadth and height and depth and length to know this love because in knowing this love, we glorify Christ and we want him glorious in our lives. So now, bless our time together, we pray for his glory. Amen. So, Steve was wrong. I'm not preaching on Psalm 2. I'm preaching on one verse. Mark chapter 1, if you would turn there. You see, it's all the same at McKinney Bible Church. We pay the secretary to put out the bulletin and nobody reads it. It was Abraham Kuyper who said... The whole earth belongs to the Lord, and he rules over all of it. And there's not one square inch to which he does not say, mine. It's mine. We want to talk about the Lord's rule, and I would like us to look at it in the Gospel of Mark And so what we're going to do is we're going to use verse 1 of chapter 1 as it probably is in the original, the title of the book, which tells us the theme of the book. 
And then we're going to look at that theme in the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to discover that his theme is an Old Testament theme that comes to fulfillment in Christ. And it came to fulfillment at the resurrection of Christ and his ascension and his sitting down at the right hand of the Father. So the point of the sermon is very simple. Your God reigns. Of course, to we who know, that means he's sovereign. He rules over everything. There's not one square inch to which he does not lay claim, which means he lays claim to all of our lives. And if there's not one square inch to which he does not lay claim, he holds all of our lives in his hands, and everything that happens happens because of him He either decrees it or he permits it, but it all happens within his sovereign will. And so when you're about to point the finger, stop and say, wait a minute, God let this happen. So I'm doing my usual primping this morning so that I could look nice and handsome for you. And I know that some of you may be sleepy because you lost an hour of sleep. I have no sympathy for you. Because my usual Saturday night is I... I get in bed at 10. I watch the news till 10.30. I worry about the sermon till 11.30. I fall asleep and I get up at 2. So my 11.30 was 12.30, so I have an hour and a half. So I'm kind of groggy, and so I won't be able to tell what time it is, so you might be here for a while. Don't worry, because you'll be fast asleep. It won't hurt you. (laughs) Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Most of us know what the word gospel means in the New Testament. And if I asked you, you would say, well, that's simple. It means good news. Sure enough, it does. Most of us could articulate what the gospel is because we would quickly turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and we would say, well, Paul gives a summarization of the gospel here. Here it is. We can say that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried and he rose the third day according to the scriptures and he was manifested. There it is, four points. Died, buried, rose, appeared. Everybody knows that. But that's... Not Mark's gospel. So if you just glance down the page there to verse 14. And after John had been taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled And the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. 
What is Mark's gospel? Well, Mark's gospel, I think most would agree who have been studying and thinking, draws its imagery from the Old Testament. And the word gospel in the Old Testament is found in Isaiah, particularly in three places. So it's found in Isaiah chapter 40, and it's found in Isaiah chapter 52. And you know it from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 9 through 11, where Zion is called to get up and lift up its voice, and Jerusalem is called to give the good news. Your God comes. And then in Isaiah 52, verse 7, which Paul draws from in Romans chapter 10, How beautiful are the feet of those on the mountains who bring tidings of good news. And what is the good news? Your God reigns. That's Mark's gospel. Your God reigns. And so he says, the beginning of the reign of God in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Well, now, wait a minute. When we see the word beginning, well, our minds just flip back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. You're not talking about that beginning. We think of John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He's using beginning in a beginning sense. Your God reigns. Well, wait a minute. Jesus is the Son of God, always has been the Son of God, and He's always been at the right hand of the Father, so He's always reigned. So what do you mean the beginning of the reign of God? So Mark means something a little more nuanced than that, doesn't he? And he says this gospel is concerning Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. Well, we're we're biblical enough to know that Jesus is the human name of our Savior, taken from the Old Testament name Joshua. Yahweh is salvation. And we know in our group here that the word Christ comes from the Old Testament word Messiah and means the anointed one. And we know that prophets and priests and kings were anointed. But when we think of anointing in the sense of your God reigns, we're not thinking so much about a priest and a prophet, we're thinking about a king, the anointed one. And we know that there are all kinds of promises in the Old Testament about the Messiah, the anointed one. And now Mark says, the beginning of the reign of God in the person of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Well, most of us, when we think about the term the Son of God, the expression, we think of the triune God, and well, we should. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And we say, well, now Jesus is eternally God, the second person of the triune God. That's fine. That's not what Mark is thinking of. No, Mark is thinking of the Old Testament He's steeped in the Old Testament. And he's thinking of Psalm 2. And he's thinking of 2 Samuel chapter 7. 
the Davidic covenant where David is promised that his descendant would sit on the throne forever and God would be his father and the king would be his son, the son of God. And Mark is thinking about Psalm 89 where the anointed king is the highest of the kings of the earth, the Davidic king. And so here he says, the beginning, the start of your God reigns in the person of Jesus, Yahweh is salvation, the Christ who's been anointed from above, the fulfillment of the Davidic promise the Son of God. So the psalmist says in Psalm 2, and we know that we're interpreting it correctly. All we need to do is look in the book of Hebrews, that greatest of New Testament books. As for me, I've installed my king on Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decree of the Lord. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance and the end of the earth for your possession. That's exactly what happened when Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended on high and he sat down and in Acts chapter 2, Peter in that great sermon says to the people, look, this Jesus whom you've crucified God raised him from the dead and he seated him in his right hand just like it says in Psalm 110. The Lord said to my Lord, you sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Jesus both Lord Sovereign and Christ, the anointed one. Ah, so Jesus rose up into heaven and he sat down and I submit to you, he's been reigning ever since. Your God reigns. You say, well, now wait a minute, Jesus. Well, we don't use that name, but the son of God has eternally reigned. So what do you mean the beginning of the reign of God? Think of it this way. We say, rightly so, our God is immutable. He's unchangeable. Nothing changes about him. Ah, but there's one little magnificent caveat, isn't there? For the Son of God came and was born of a virgin so that this person added to himself a second nature. And we could call that nature Jesus. And Jesus was born a human like you and me. And he never once reigned. He had a beginning like you and I have a beginning. And he went to the cross and he died and he rose again and he, the God-man, the Son of God eternally, with a second nature, the person of Jesus sat down 
And God made Jesus, one of us, a human being, albeit glorified, both sovereign and Christ forever. Your God reigns. Ah, but we still haven't dealt with the word beginning quite enough, have we? Because when you think of beginning, you automatically think of Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And we know from a multitude of passages, including John chapter 1, that the one who was doing the creating, the agent of creation, was the Son of God himself. He's not created. He's the creator. But now there's a, another beginning. It's a new beginning. It's a new creation. Whereby the temple, the sacrifices, Judaism, the Old Testament is done. Well, I don't mean that exclusively or entirely. But something new has started. And it started in the person of Christ. And it's the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, not that every aspect has been fulfilled. I'm not trying to say that either. But Jesus sat down at the Father's right hand and Mark is telling us, your God reigns. Okay, turn to the end of the book. Turn to Mark chapter 15. So in Mark chapter 15, the sixth hour comes. Jesus is hanging on the cross. And at high noon, at high noon, the lights go out. There's darkness all over the land. I don't take it that it means all over the globe. It means all over the land, the land of Israel. And they didn't have street lights. They didn't have a little light switch to turn on. It was dark. And I assume prior to this, people are walking by and wagging their heads and saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. Let him come down if he's the Christ. And for three hours, there's this eerie darkness and people become quiet. They don't know what to make of it either. And then at the end of the third hour, the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, Jesus cries out, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And the darkness is picturesque of the sun hanging on the cross, loaded down with your sin and my sin by imputation. And God says, I have nothing, nothing, nothing to do with you. And so he gives him all of evil and darkness and rottenness and separation from himself, all that hell is, Jesus bears there on the cross in the space of this three hours when darkness covers the place. And Jesus experiences what it means to be in hell, separated from God, 
Why did you abandon me? And somebody says, wait a minute, wait a minute. I think he's calling Elijah. So somebody runs over and gets a sponge and dips it in the jar of sour wine and puts it on a reed and puts it up to his mouth and gives him a drink and says, let's see if Elijah's going to come and take him down from the cross. And then he cries out. We know there are two cries. It is finished. Everything's done. And Father, into your hands, I hand over my spirit. And then we're told that the veil of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. And in verse 39, And when the centurion who was standing there, who was standing right in front of him, saw the way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was, well, the New American Standard says, a son of God. Let's fix that. I love the New American Standard. It makes a mistake every now and then. The son of God. Now, wait. This is Mark terminology. We're not talking about the second person of the triune God, although Jesus is that. We're talking about the prophecies of the Old Testament. The Son of God drives us right back to the beginning of the book. The beginning of the gospel. Your God reigns concerning the person of Jesus the Christ, the Son of God. Your God reigns. Well, right here, it doesn't look like he's reigning too much, does it? But the centurion. People say, well, we don't know how much he knew. That's true, we don't. So let's be positive. Mark is making a point. The centurion, he's Gentile. Would he know anything about the Old Testament? He sure could. Other people did that weren't Jews. He looked at how Jesus died. And he says, wow, this was the Son. God. Now, in case we think, oh, we shouldn't think that way, turn back to chapter 1. Verse 9, it came about in those days that Jesus came from Nazareth into Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan and immediately coming up out of the water he saw the heavens opened and the spirit like a dove descending upon him and a voice came out of the heavens. Now who's talking? God. Thou art my beloved son. In thee I am well pleased. Thou art the Son of God. You're my Son, Davidic covenant. Surely I'll tell of the decree of the Lord. The Lord said to me, Thou art my Son. And just like a king, Jesus is anointed, coming up out of the water, and God says, You're my Son the son of my love. I'm well pleased with you. That's what God says. 
it ties right back to chapter 15. Because Mark wants us, uh, wants us to catch the literary significance of what he's doing. And so the heavens are split apart. And a voice calls out, You are my son! Of course, we need to think of this in terms of Jesus' ministry and the finalization of you're my son because the psalm says, you're my son, today I've begotten you. Ask of me and I'll give you the nations for your inheritance. He sits down and, and the reign is started. Ah, ah, wait, just like Saul. Saul was anointed. Did he reign right away? No. David was anointed. Did he reign right away? No. Jesus was anointed. Did he reign right away? No. Not until he went up and he sat down. He was coronated king. King Jesus. This is the gospel about the reign of Jesus, the Christ, the Son of God. And the voice calls out, You are my son. The heavens split apart. But the same very word is used in chapter 15. The curtain was split in two. Torn apart. God wants to talk down to men. He rolls the heavens back and he talks down. Man wants to get up to God. The barrier is erased. And the centurion looks up and he says, This was the Son of God. Okay, so in good literary style, some of you like to read. I hope a lot of you like to read. And one of the things about literature is inclusio, bookends, to bring the beginning and the end together, just like that. Mark has done that for us, hasn't he? Your God. How does Jesus reign? First, by going to the cross, rising from the dead, and ascending to the right hand of the Father, where God makes him both Lord and Christ. So today, Jesus reigns. That's not new news to you, is it? That's old news. Okay? Turn, if you would, to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9 is the story of the transfiguration. And already we're getting a glimpse about something. But it falls in this, this larger section that begins in chapter 8, verse 22, and it ends at the end of chapter 10. And what starts the section out is the healing of a blind man. Wouldn't you know I'd choose something like that? And what ends the section is another healing of a blind man. Prior to the healing of the first blind man, the twelve are in the boat and Jesus says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And oh boy, we forgot bread again. And Jesus says, What is it with you guys? Why are you talking about bread? Do you have eyes and you cannot see? Are you blind? Do you have ears and you cannot hear? What? What? Do you have hard hearts? Oh, what happened with the first feeding? 
Well, what happened with the second feeding? And then, boom, we jump into this section, bracketed. Oh, Mark likes to do this by two miracles of blind people. And within this section fall the three statements that Jesus gives to his disciples about the fact that he's going to die. He's going to be delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes, and they're going to hand him over to the Gentiles. And the final one says, and they're going to scourge him and mock him and spit upon him and kill him. And after three days, he'll rise from the dead. And we're reminded the disciples just don't get it. So, first blind man, Jesus comes and spits in him, his eyes. Lovely thought. And he puts his hands on him and says, well, what do you see? Oh, here's what I see. I see people walking around like trees. Somebody says, that's not a very good miracle. Although some of us are growing large enough to be a tree, I suppose. I'm speaking of myself here. You know, we came to church here 27 years ago. Do you know that? I won't tell you much. I weighed less then than I do now. So Jesus lays his hands on him again, and now he sees perfectly. And then we come to the end of the section, and there's another miracle. And Jesus is going out of Jericho. And there's a blind man named Bartimaeus, the son of Timaeus. And he's yelling out, Jesus, son of David. Jesus, you king, have mercy on me. And you know how people are. They say, man, shut up. Shut up. But blind people are stubborn and persistent. And so he yelled all the more. And Jesus stops and says, bring him over here. And they say, hey, man, take courage. He's calling for you. So he goes over, throws his coat aside. And Jesus says, what do you want? Rabbi, I want to see. Jesus says, go your way. Your faith has saved you, made you well, saved you. And what's he do? Hop up and go his way? No. He gets on the road with Jesus to Jerusalem. Ah, so the two-stage healing is where the disciples are. The one-stage healing is where they need to get to. And we know that because right away, after the first healing, Jesus takes the twelve aside and he says, and this is what's going to happen to the Son of Man. He's going to go up to Jerusalem and he's going to, he's going to be killed and he's going to rise on the third day. Good. They understand. We're going to Jerusalem. And then Peter takes Jesus aside and he says, Lord, God forbid this ever happens to you. He needs a little more healing, doesn't he? Because Jesus is looking at all the disciples to Peter. You get behind me, Satan. Because your concern is not God's interests, but man's interests. And then comes this great discipleship passage. to tell the disciples you got to be like Bartimaeus when you finally see get on the road go to Jerusalem with me die for me like I'm going to die because 
Ah, the gospel. Yahweh saves. Jesus dies. He rises again. That's what happens to his disciples as well. And so he gives this, this statement about discipleship. If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross, follow me. He who loses his life will... He who saves his life will lose it, but he who loses his life for my sake and for the gospel, he will save it. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? What does a profit to gain the whole world and forfeit your life? Anyone who is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory, in the Father's glory with the holy angels. And then comes this statement in chapter 9, verse 1. And he was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, there is there are some of those who are standing here who shall not taste of death until they see the kingdom of God, the kingdom of God after it has come with power. Now to have a kingdom, you've got to have a king. And the beginning of the reign is not until Jesus sits down. And so, okay, I grew up thinking, okay, so the transfiguration, Jesus says, some of you aren't going to taste death. And so here it is. They get a pre-glimpse. Peter, James, and John, they go up in the Mount of Transfiguration, and they see Jesus in his glory. But that can't be quite the case. Otherwise, what Jesus says makes sense. Some of you will see, but the implication is some are going to die. What if you read verse 2? It's only six days late. Nobody died yet. No. So here, James and John, and Peter, James and John, they, they get a foretaste. They see this glory, but the fulfillment, some of you will see the kingdom come, that it has come in its power. That can't be the transfiguration. There's something more. So these three men go up in the mountain with Jesus. And there's Elijah and Moses. And Peter starts talking like a fool. Sticks his foot in his mouth. And then cloud overshadows them. And they hear a voice. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. There's that word again, the son of David, the son of my love. And it's a reference to the picture of Christ sitting at the right hand of God in glory. Now we've got 15 minutes left, so at NBC that means about 45, so hang on. Turn to chapter 14. In chapter 14, Jesus, in verse 53, appears before the high priest and the Sanhedrin. Peter's at a distance. And 
they're looking for charges against Jesus, but everything that's brought forward, they're inconsistent, and then come along some guys with some false charges, and they claim that Jesus said, I'm going to destroy this temple and build this temple made with hands, and I'm going to build another one without hands in three days. And even in this, we're told they were not consistent. And Jesus just is silent. Verse 60. And the high priest arose and he came forward and he questioned Jesus, saying, Do you make no answer to what these men are testifying against you? But he kept silent. And he made no answer. Again, the high priest was questioning him and saying, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? Well, now, Jews, they didn't say Yahweh, the Son of God. They substituted something else like Adonai. You see that in your Bibles. But here... What the high priest says, are are you the Christ, the anointed one? And then he says, the son of the blessed one, that is, the son of God. He's not thinking, no way he's thinking, son of God, second person of the triune God, not, not the high priest. No, he's thinking, Davidic Christ, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? And Jesus said, I am, and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. And boom, he tears his clothes. He says, what do you guys think? And they all consider him worthy of death. And so they come and they spit in his face. And they begin to slap him about the head. This wonderful Jewish Sanhedrin. I want you to notice. Are you the Christ, the son of the blessed one? In Mark's gospel, your God reigns. But the high priest never thinks Jesus is not the Christ. He's not going to reign. But Jesus says, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. When did the high priest ever see that? You will see. When, When did he ever see that? Well, he did. He did. Mark is drawing now from Daniel chapter 7. I looked in the night visions, verse 13, and behold, I saw one like a son of man coming up to the ancient of days. And he was given power and sovereignty and a kingdom and dominion. When Jesus says, 
you're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven, we think about Jesus coming to us. But that's not what Jesus means. Jesus means you're going to see that I'm installed as king. Your God reigns. Wait a minute, how are they going to see it? How are they going to see Jesus installed as king? Turn back to chapter 13. Now we're treading on sticky ground here. Verse 24. But in those days, after the tribulation, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from the heavens and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken and then they shall see the Son of Man coming in clouds with great power and glory. And then he's going to send forth his angels. Okay, this is the shortened version of Matthew, and because of time, we don't have time to look. But we think, okay, Jesus is coming, yes. And friends, he is coming. No doubt about it, he's coming. And we look at this terminology and we think of the book of Revelation. We think of Revelation chapter 6 where the sun becomes black like sackcloth made with hair and the moon is like blood and the stars fall to the earth. What happens if a star hits the earth? Kaboom! We don't exist. But in Revelation, just like in Mark, why Jesus is Jewish and he's thinking back to Old Testament texts that use this same language. I'm just going to give them to you. You can write them down and look them up so that you can say, yes, Craig is telling the truth here because we don't have time. But in Isaiah chapter 13, verses 9 and 10, the same kind of imagery is employed when Babylon is going to be crushed by Medo-Persia. In Isaiah chapter 34, verses 4 and 5, the same language is used when Edom is going to be visited by God. In Ezekiel chapter 32, verses 7 and 8, the same kind of language is employed when Egypt is going to be crushed in a visitation. The lights are going to go out. Well, that shouldn't surprise us. We can be literal interpreters, but we can admit when a symbol's used, let's use it as a symbol and be literal about it. And so when we think of the sun and the moon and the stars, first of all, we realize from Genesis 1, the sun's the greater light that rules by day and the moon is the lesser light that rules by night. We're talking about ruling already. And then we come to Genesis chapter 37 and Joseph has a dream and his father and his mother are the sun and the moon and the stars and they're all going to bow down to him. He's going to rule over them when in fact the sun and the moon rule and the stars rule. So it's a figure of speech about rulers. And what happens? 
when a nation is crushed? Why, its rulers are taken out. There are no more kings. The lights are turned out. The government is gone. And that's what Jesus is saying in Matthew 24 and in Mark 13. You're going to see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Ah, but now let's put it together. We have one more small passage to talk about. But let's put it together right here. Mark 13, Matthew 24 are about when the temple's going to be destroyed. And when was it destroyed? In 70 A.D. And what happened to the rulers of Judaism? They were crushed. And the sacrificial system came to an end. And Judaism, as relates to the Old Testament law, came to an end. And it has never, 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 never existed since. There are forms, but not an Old Testament form. There's no temple. There's no altar. There's no Ark of the Covenant. There's no sacrifices. Because there can't be. The lights went out. Didn't they? And Jesus is saying, look, to the high priest, you're going to see the Son of Man at the right hand of power coming with the clouds of heaven. I looked in the night visions and I saw one like a Son of Man coming up to the Ancient of Days. And he was given a kingdom and dominion and rule and authority. Jesus died. He was buried. He rose again. He ascended. He went up. And God said, sit down, son, sit down. Your God reigns. Okay, one more passage. And again, because of time, we won't be able to read it all. Turn back to Mark chapter 11. So in Mark 11, it's the cleansing of the temple. You know the story. Jesus comes in in what we call the triumphal entry, and he goes into the temple, and he looks around, and then he goes out. Next day, he's coming in from Bethany with his disciples, and he sees a fig tree, and he's hungry, so... He sees a fig tree with leaf, and he comes up to it, hoping to find some fruit. And he found well, none. And Mark says, because it wasn't the season for fruit. And Jesus cursed that fig tree and said, no one will ever eat from you again. Then he goes into the temple. This huge edifice, 35 acres in dimension, its grounds. And out in the court of the Gentiles, he begins to stop people from carrying goods to and fro. He stops them from changing money to pay the temple tax. He stops them from selling doves. And we say, well, he's cleansing the temple. And he says to them, you're making my house, which is a house of prayer for all nations, into a den of robbers. So it was Jesus cleansing it. 
This temple is 35 acres in dimension. What he's doing at the north end, nobody would know about at the south end. There's stuff all around. He isn't throwing everyone out. But the fig tree is on both sides of this statement of the temple. And he says to the people, you've taken my house, which is a house of prayer for all the nation, and you've made it into a den of robbers. The den of robbers comes from Jeremiah chapter 7. A house for all the nations comes from Isaiah chapter 56. I wish we had time. Can we stay another two hours? Oh, okay. And when we look at the word robbers in Mark, which appears in 14 and 15, Jesus is called a robber. And the two thieves are called robbers. And what kind of robber were they? They're not your common thief who break a window, smash your car, and grab your purse and run. That's not what the term is referring to. It's referring to a zealot. What we would call him today is a terrorist. These thieves, Barabbas was a terrorist. He was a nationalist for Jews. He wanted the Romans out of there. And so likely what he did is what they do over in Baghdad. He took a bomb and even killed his own people to make a point to Rome. Get out, get out, get out. We don't want you Gentiles, Jesus says. You're making my house into a house for zealots. But it's a house of prayer for all the nations. Well, so they go back out of town, back to Bethany, come back the next morning. Peter sees the fig tree. Lord, look at the fig tree. It's withered from its roots up. Here's this sandwich, fig tree on both sides of the temple. Jesus cursed the fig tree, no fruit. At the time he was going to the fig tree, there should have been little knobs of figs called packum, but there was nothing, so he cursed it. It wasn't the season for full-fledged figs. And when he went into the temple, this was not a house of prayer for all the nations. This was a Jewish stronghold. And so in an enacted parable, he said, I'm shutting this place down. There aren't going to be people carrying things through. There aren't going to be sacrifices. I'm closing shop because there's no fruit. And so, standing before the chief priests and the council, he says, you're going to see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven. You're going to see the Son of Man at the right hand of power. He's referring to Daniel chapter 7. When he's enthroned, which he has been now for some 2,000 years, when he's enthroned, he takes charge. And one of the first orders of business was to shut down Judaism. Temple sacrifices forever. Because it's just a shadow. And when the real has come, the shadow is left behind. So the point of the message is what? 
your God reigns. That is wonderful news. I know some of you here are interested in politics. I've been hearing about it from a certain someone at this church. I won't mention any names, but he's not here this morning. And I I get up primping to make myself look good for you again today. And I have a little ritual I go through. I work, I pray till just a little after six, and then I go take a shower, and then while I'm shaving, and there's a lot to do here. It takes a while. I listen at 6.30 to R.C. Sproul, and I listen at 7 to S. Lewis Johnson. In between those two, there's a little word commercial break. Can I just give a caveat? I'm not fond of Christian stations, quite frankly. I wish they were different. And so here's this thing you can pay money to, and you're going to go hear all these guys who gab on the radio talk about how the Reagan administration is like or different than the Obama administration. I'm thinking, is that all Christians got better to do? Your God reigns! If Obama's there, he's there because God put him there. Don't worry about Obama. He's going to sink us. It's okay. Your God reigns. And he showed it in 70 AD when he said, no more. And one day, he's coming back and he's going to say to this globe, no more. Because his kingdom has been established. And he's sitting on his throne. And he reigns. Isn't that beautiful? And it doesn't matter if you're just a dumb, blind preacher who has to have people lead you even into the bathroom. Or whether you're sitting in a wheelchair or you've lost your job or you don't have enough money or you can't seem to overcome that sin, your God reigns. And he's got a promise to us. And I promise you come every week and you pick up that bread and you pick up that cup and Jesus is saying, this is my reign. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all of your idols and from all of your filthiness. Moreover, I will put a new heart in you and I'll give you a new spirit and I'll take away the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh and give you a new spirit. And in addition, Jesus sat down and he poured forth the Holy Spirit. I will give you my spirit who will, will cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to keep my ordinances. Can you not overcome that sin? Jesus reigns. He's going to get you there. Your God reigns. Mark is beautiful. Well, we studied it in a home Bible study a year ago and it just opened up to me so much and I can't get it off of my mind. The message Well, there's so much we haven't said, but the message really is simple. Right at the the beginning, the beginning of the reign of God in the person of Jesus, Yahweh is salvation. 
the Christ. God made him both Lord and Christ, the Son of God. Thou art my Son today, today, your King, your God reigns. Take your problems that are big to you, they're puny to God. He can crush a whole system, destroy a temple. He can show his power to the high priest that he is. He has come up to the ancient of days and that he is sitting at the right hand of power. And he does come on clouds, by the way, another image from the Old Testament. Yahweh rides the clouds. It's a figure of speech. He's in charge. Your God reigns. If you came in today depressed, walk out free. Why? Because your God reigns. You came in thinking life's not really worth it. Walk out knowing it's worth it. Why? Because your God reigns. You think you're getting old and you're going to die one of these days? It's true, but don't worry about it. Your God reigns. Just like Jesus rose from the dead and is glorified at the right hand of the Father, so you too, because you're in Him, will rise from the dead and be glorified, and you'll sit right in Jesus' throne at the right hand of the Father, Revelation chapter 3. Your God reigns. Let's bow in prayer. Lord God, take these meager words of mine, your word is not meager. And just open our hearts to them that Jesus is sitting. The work is done. He's reigning. He's done what he said he would do. He's crushed the temple. He's crushed Judaism. He's completed the sacrificial system. And now he sits at your right hand where he reigns and at the same time he resides as the head of the body of Christ, the new temple in which the Holy Spirit dwells and where its bricks, its mortar, who are there to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to you through Christ. We thank you for this God who reigns. In addition, we do know that he is coming and just like he put an end to a fruitless Judaism. He will put an end to a fruitless world. And then the new beginning that started at the ascension, the new beginning will become fully manifest all over this earth. And we will throng him saying, Our God reigns. Blessed be the name of the Lord. We pray this for the glory of Christ. Amen.